Peter states in 2 Peter 2, 3, that the false teachers are doomed to judgment. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. While verse 3 served as the final warning of the previous section, it also is the springboard for what comes next. Consider the following logic. Because the false teachers deliberately mislead others, God will, without a doubt, judge them. God's judgment of false teachers is absolute because God routinely judged the wicked throughout history. Thus, in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, Peter presents three examples of God's judgment in the past. Notably, all three of Peter's examples come from the book of Genesis in chronological order. The angels of Genesis 6, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Amongst the judgment of these examples, Peter includes the preservation of the righteous, namely Lot and Noah. His point is to demonstrate that the judgment on false teachers involves a vindication of the righteous. Not only does God vindicate the righteous, he also preserves the righteous. Peter's inclusion of God's preservation of the righteous is meant to encourage scattered and suffering saints. Since God strengthened and preserved Noah and Lot in the cultures that they lived in which wickedness dominated, we too can trust that God will strengthen and preserve us in the presence of false teachers. Now the structure of verses 4 through 10 is significant. 2 Peter 2, 4 to 10 is a classic if-then argument. If-then arguments or conditional arguments are the backbones of deductive logic. In verses 4 through 6, Peter presents the argument's prodigious. If God did not spare the angels that sinned, if God did not spare the ancient world, if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, the hypothesis is presented in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. As well, verse 4 begins with the conjunction for linking the judgment of false teachers in verse 3 to the three examples which follow and form the Protestants. By doing so, Peter argues for the certainty of judgment on false teachers. God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the angels of Genesis 6. God's judgment of the angels of Genesis 6. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the angels of Genesis 6. God firmly states that he did not spare angels when they sinned. The verb spare implies forgiveness and mercy. Sin means to violate divine law. Whatever sin these angels committed was a violation of God's law. As such, God had no mercy and offered no forgiveness to these angels. Angels were created sometime between the second and third day of creation. Sometime after the seventh day, Lucifer rebelled and was cast out of the third heaven, God's dwelling place, as seen in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. One-third of the angels rebelled with him and were also cast out of the third heaven, according to Revelation 12.4. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This sin of rebellion is not the, the specific sin to which Peter refers. As previously established, Jude alludes to 2 Peter some 13 times. Ten of those allusions are from 2 Peter 2. Jude explicitly refers to both the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 6 and 7. And regarding the angels, Jude references the specific sin in question when he states in verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. The phrase abandon their proper abode refers to having illicit sexual relations. Furthermore, Peter states in 1 Peter 3.20 that these angels were, quote, disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Placing this angelic disobedience within the context of Noah's timeline further establishes that the specific sin of 2 Peter 2.4 refers back to Genesis 6, 1-2 and 4. Text says, Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the Son of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now the sons of God, the Benaha Elohim, in the Old Testament refers to angels. In addition, the Septuagint translates sons of God in Genesis 6 as angels. The term took, lecha, in Genesis 6 too, is the collective term for entering into a marriage relationship. And the result of this insidious union between fallen angels and human women were the Nephilim, or literally the fallen ones. While not all fallen angels took human women as wives, there is no doubt that Satan orchestrated this. Satan, knowing the promise that the seed son would crush Satan's head, wanted to corrupt the seed of the woman, thus to prevent the Messiah's coming. Now to those who question the scripture's inerrancy regarding this event, consider three proofs for the text's accuracy and truthfulness. First, several Jewish historical narratives record the same event such as First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews. Second, both Peter and Jude quote the Enoch passage in their epistles when referencing the Genesis 6 angels. That both Peter, an apostle, and Jude, the half-brother of Christ, would quote First Enoch under the Holy Spirit superintending validates Enoch's record as a divinely approved historical record. Though first Enoch is not divinely inspired or God-breathed, God does approve its accuracy and truthfulness. And third, Greek mythology records the legends of the Titans, which bears a striking similarity to Genesis 6, 1-4. According to the legend, the ten Titans, or demigods, cohabitated with earthly women. Zeus the god intervened and condemned the Titans to Tartarus. Now, according to Greek mythology, Tartarus was a place lower than Hades, set aside for the most wicked. What validates the truth behind the myth is Peter's Tartarus usage indescribing describing the imprisonment of the Genesis 6 angels. Peter states in 2 Peter 2.4 that God cast them into hell or Tartarao, Tartarus. The Jews used the term Tartarus 
to describe the prison house where fallen angels were confined, according to the book of Enoch. First Enoch states, quote, These are the numbers of the stars of heaven, which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and are bound here till 10,000 years. The time entailed by their sins are consummated. And he said to me, This place is the prison of the angels, and here they will be imprisoned forever. See, instead of mercy and forgiveness, God rendered an immediate judgment against these angels. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Again, hell translates Tartarus and refers to the prison house in hell created explicitly for these angels. Pits of darkness presents some translation difficulty, though. The term pits would be better rendered as chains or cords. Rendering the term as chains textually fits Jude's parallel statement, kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That term, desmos, translated as bonds in Jude 6, is a synonym of Peter's term, sierra, pits. The term darkness denotes a condition of despair or gloom. Hence, their chains caused them to despair. Peter's point is that these angels are confined in Tartarus and restrained in chains of despair because they have been reserved for judgment. The term reserved, it means to keep imprisoned. God's immediate judgment upon these angels was to keep them imprisoned until a time of future judgment. And that future judgment is, as Jude says, the judgment of the great day. That is the great white throne judgment when these angels will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the angels of Genesis 6. And God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the ancient world. Chapter 2, verse 5. God's judgment on the ancient world. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 2 Peter 2.5 Again, God's judgment on false teachers is certain, because God judged the ancient world. Again, Peter firmly states that God did not spare the ancient world. The verb spare, again, implies forgiveness or, and mercy. The ancient world is the world that existed before the flood. This world was not simply the ancient world. It was the world of the ungodly. And the term ungodly does not simply mean irreligious, but instead refers to those who practice the opposite of what God demands. According to Genesis 6, 11 to 13 and 17, the ancient world was corrupt and filled with violence. Genesis 6, 11 to 13 and 17. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Twice, Genesis 6 states that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. 
according to God's estimation. Corrupt means to lack integrity or uprightness, to be immoral. The immorality that corrupted the earth was the sexual union between the fallen angels and the human women. And the extent of this corruption was all flesh. The extent of this corruption, again, was all flesh. All flesh refers to all the living human inhabitants on earth. Everyone had corrupted their way. In other words, their course of conduct was morally corrupt. Only Noah's wife and their three daughters-in-law remained untouched by this immorality by the time the flood came. Now twice in Genesis 6, it states that the earth was filled with violence. Filled means to contain as much as possible and be on the verge of overflowing. Violence refers to arrogant, pompous disregard for the sanctity of human life. See, the earth was overrun with moral corruption and extreme wickedness because of the Nephilim. And as a result, God determined to end humanity and destroy the earth with a flood of overflowing water. As Peter states in verse 5, he brought a flood. That word brought implies a divine event. Hence, the flood was directly brought upon the world by God. Now, the term end in Genesis 6 refers to an event that is going to result in the end of one era and the beginning of another. The event which will bring about the end is the flood. The definite article in the Hebrew text, ha, in ha-mabul, indicates that this is not like any other flood. While floods can be localized, this flood was global. God's purpose in sending the flood was to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. Twice in 2 Peter 2.5, Peter uses the term world, cosmos. He uses the term world to underscore the fact that the flood was global, and as such, God's judgment was universal. All the ungodly perished. Presently, false teachers are ungodly. They not only practice the opposite of what God's command, they teach others to do the same. And just as God's judgment was universal in Noah's day, so his judgment will be universal upon false teachers at the end of the age. All false teachers will be judged at the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. Now amid this judgment, the righteous were vindicated. Peter states that God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Though surrounded by ungodliness, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. This description of Noah is noteworthy because nowhere in the Old Testament does it refer to Noah as such. What is revealed is that Noah was blameless, righteous, and faithful. Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now the phrase preacher of righteousness conveys the idea that Noah preached repentance to the ungodly. Peter's adoption of this phrase was influenced by Jewish historical sources. Jewish historian Josephus recorded that, quote, Noah was very uneasy at what they did, and being displeased at their conduct persuaded them to change their dispositions and their acts for the better. Clement, Jewish contemporary to Peter, wrote, quote, Noah preached repentance, and as many as listened to him were saved. 
Noah, being found faithful, preached regeneration to the world through his ministry. See, Noah challenged the ungodly to repent of their sins and receive God's saving righteousness. Now, there's some debate about the next phrase as to whether to translate the Greek numeral agduos, meaning eighth, as Noah the eighth person, or Noah with seven others. Some have interpreted the meaning of eighth in 2 Peter 2.5 to imply that Noah was the eighth generation from Adam. However, a cursory study of biblical genealogies demonstrates that Noah was the, of the tenth generation. Also, Peter used the number eight in 1 Peter 3.20 to indicate the number of people God preserved through the flood. Therefore, the eighth is properly understood to refer to Noah and seven others, his family members, who numbered eight people. Peter's point is that God preserved a small number of people. And that verb preserved means to keep watch over, guard, or to escape violence. Indeed, God watched over Noah and his family, directing them to build an ark, which would be how they would escape the flood's violence and destruction. See, like Noah and his family, Peter's readers were few in number and surrounded by paganism and hostility. His point was that they did not need to be discouraged by their small number. The righteous will always be small in number. But regardless of number, God will always be faithful to his people. And just as the flood's judgment vindicated Noah and his family, so too we will be vindicated at the great white throne judgment. God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the angels of Genesis 6, because God judged the generation, the ungodly generation of Noah's day. And third, God's judgment on false teachers is certain because God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter only mentions Sodom and Gomorrah as representative of the five cities of the Jordan Valley which God destroyed. The other three cities were Adma, Zeboim, and Zor. Before the destruction of the cities, the plains of Jordan were, quote, well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, Genesis 13.10. Afterward, the valley was permanently ruined. Peter's use of Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment as an example of God's wrath against disobedience was not out of place amongst Jewish believers. Moses referenced this judgment to warn the Israelites before entering the land of promise. Deuteronomy 29.23 All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment in their warnings against Israel's disobedience. Isaiah 3.9 They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Jeremiah 23.14 Also among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16.49 Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Amos 4.11 I overthrew you, 
as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Zephaniah 2.9, Surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and small pits and a perpetual desolation. Christ also compared Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment to the judgment awaiting unbelievers. Matthew 10.15, Truly I say to you it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now notice here that Peter, instead of using the verb did not spare, as in the previous two contexts, here he uses the verb condemned, katakrino, meaning to declare someone guilty and pronouncing a sentence against them. Now while Peter does not identify Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, Jude states that the cities, quote, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, Jude 7. In other words, their sin was so great that Yahweh said to Abraham, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave, Genesis 18.20. Exceedingly grave depicts their sin as abundantly grievous and burdensome. Because of their gross immorality, God sentenced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction. The term destruction, catastrophe, describes an event that completely ruins or overthrows something. Peter's use of the term catastrophe alludes to the Septuagint translation of Genesis 19.29 that states that God sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, or the taste catastrophes. According to Genesis 19.24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire. Peter's statement, reducing them to ashes, confirms such destruction. That phrase, reducing them to ashes, means that the cities were burnt all together, leaving only ash behind. And Peter mentions the ash because it was still apparent in his day and served as proof that the cities were destroyed as recorded in Scripture. Now, is it possible that the ash was still evident some 2,000 years later? Consider a Jewish text known as the Wisdom of Solomon, penned between the end of the 1st century B.C. and the beginning of the 1st century A.D., states, quote, Evidence of their wickedness still remains, a continually smoking wasteland, plants bearing fruit that does not ripen, and a pillar of salt standing as a monument to an unbelieving soul. For because they passed wisdom by, they did not only not only were hindered from recognizing the good, but also left for humankind a reminder of their folly so that their failures could never go unnoticed. Jewish historian Philo, who lived from 20 B.C. till A.D. 50, stated, quote, And a most evident proof of this is to be found in what is seen to this day. For the smoke which is still emitted and the sulfur which men dig up there are proof of the calamity which befell that country and as a constant evidence of the punishment which was inflicted by the divine will on the rest of the country. Even to this day there are seen in Syria monuments of the unprecedented destruction that fell upon them in the ruins and ashes and sulfur and smoke and dusky flame which is still sent up from the ground as a fire smoldering beneath. As well, the historian Josephus, who lived from A.D. 37 to A.D. 100, states, It is related how, for the impiety of its inhabitants, Sodom was burnt by lightning. 
in consequence of which there are still the remainders of that divine fire, and the traces or shadows of the five cities are still to be seen. Undoubtedly, Scripture is inerrant. Peter's mention of Sodom and Gomorrah's ash remaining in his day is confirmed by three outside historical sources. That ash served as a reminder of the fiery judgment that befell the ungodly of Sodom and Gomorrah. The ashy remains of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. The term example refers to a model or pattern given as a warning. That is, God's fiery judgment against these cities is a warning of the type of fiery judgment awaiting the false teachers in the lake of fire. While the ungodly living in Sodom and Gomorrah died, God rescued righteous Lot from destruction. Three times between verses 7 and 8, Peter emphasizes Lot's righteousness. Now immediately, one must ask why Peter referred to Lot as righteous. Genesis 19 hardly depicts Lot as righteous. Upon learning of Lot's guests, the mob wanted to have sexual relations with the angels. Lot, however, offered his virgin daughters to the mob to, quote, do to them whatever they like, Genesis 19.8. When it came to leave the city, Lot hesitated, so that the angels, quote, seized his hand and brought him outside the city, Genesis 19.16. And later, Lot became drunk and had incestuous relations with his daughters, Genesis 19.30-35. However, Genesis 19 is not the final word about Lot. In Genesis 18, Yahweh revealed to Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham responded to God in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? That God spared Lot from destruction indicates that despite all his failures and sin, God viewed him as a righteous person. What a wonderful display of God's mercy. We ought to be comforted knowing that our sins and moral failures are not the end. Indeed, God intervenes and rescues his children. So what happened to Lot? What happened that a righteous person would behave in such an unrighteous manner? Peter, anticipating that question, says that Lot was, quote, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. The verb oppressed means to wear down. Sensual refers to a lack of restraint and indulging in all kinds of sexual impurity. That the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were unprincipled indicates that they de deviated from all that was considered morally upright. And Lot's ability to make the right moral decision then was worn down by the onslaught of sin around him. And that is a good lesson for us today that our ability to make right moral decisions will be worn down by the onslaught of sin around us. Peter further explains that Lot felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The verb tormented means to be tortured or afflicted. It informs us that Lot had not become entirely numb to the sin around him. Lawless, anomas, denotes that the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah embraced a form of antinomianism and lived without law and order. Note as well that Lot's soul was tortured and afflicted by what he saw and heard. 
being exposed verbally and visually to immorality and impurity daily took a psychological toll on Lot so that his ability to make ethical choices was impaired. In a way, the ungodly damaged Lot in the same way that false teachers damage believers today. And we would do well to remember that regardless of how righteous someone may be, there is only so much exposure to immorality, so much exposure to impurity, so much exposure to false teaching that one can take before its effects are felt. Finally, in verse 9, the apotheosis of his argument. Peter makes two points. First, because God has preserved and vindicated the righteous in the past, but we can be confident that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Rescue means to deliver from evil. The evil in view here is defined by the term temptation or test brought into one's life for the express purpose of causing them to sin. See, Noah and Lot were righteous men who lived amidst great wickedness that resulted in God's judgment. Both were delivered from God's judgment. And since God delivered Noah and Lot from the godless society in which they lived, we should not doubt God's ability to deliver us from the immorality and impurity around us. Though God delivered both Noah and Lot, each had a different response to temptation. In the face of mounting pressure to sin, Noah continued to preach righteousness. Lot, however, gave in to the temptation and sinned. The difference between the two is that one focused on the Lord and the other focused on his possessions. Remember, Genesis 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of Jordan and that it was well watered everywhere. He chose Jordan's fertile valley for potential prosperity. When judgment came, Lot's life was spared, but he lost all of his material possessions. Believers who maintain their focus on God are not kept from the temptation, but are provided an escape from the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Second, because God judged the ancient world, angels that sinned, and Sodom and Gomorrah, we can be confident that the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The verb keep, translated as reserved in verse 4, referring to those angels in prison in Tartarus, means to hold in a particular position. Under punishment is a present tense participle indicating that these false teachers are even now subject to punishment. See, like the fallen angels kept in Tartarus, God is holding these false teachers for a future judgment. And upon their death, they will be immediately transferred to hell to await the day of judgment. And in hell, they are being tormented. Luke 16, 23-24. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he cried out and said, I am in agony in this flame. My friends, when the day of judgment comes, hell will give up its prisoners, who will be judged at the great white throne and cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 12-15 The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus we need not be discouraged because false teachers seemingly prosper. Though it may seem that they have somehow escaped punishment, their judgment is certain. Now the first part of verse 10 provides two reasons why this future judgment of false teachers is just. First, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. That verb indulge means to live in a particular manner. Flesh refers to carnal desires which are sinful. And corrupt desires are impure lust and perverted sexual practices. These false teachers deserve judgment because they live for their carnal desires, impure lust, and perverted sexual practices. Interestingly, this is an apt description of the fallen angels, the people of Noah's day, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Second, they despise authority. The verb despise means to express hate through ridicule and contempt. The singular usage of authority, curates, denotes that this term is referring to a particular authority, namely Jesus Christ the Lord. The term Lord translates the Greek term kurios, which is a cognate of kuriates, or authority. Hence, these false teachers hold Christ's lordship in contempt and hate Christ himself. Friends, 2 Peter 2, 4-10 presents two great truths. First, truth is that God's judgment upon false teachers is certain. It is certain because God is just and immutable or unchanging. Since he judged the angels that cohabitated with women, the ungodly generation of Noah's era, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, then he must judge false teachers. All who God judge receive an immediate judgment in hell, where he imprisons them, awaiting the future day of judgment at the great white throne. From his throne, God will cast them all into the lake of fire for all eternity. But not only these, all sinners whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, will be cast in the lake of fire. The only way one can escape this eternal punishment is to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ's redemptive work, that is, his shed blood and sacrificial death for atonement, his burial and resurrection from the dead. True salvation is, evidence in, is evidenced in fruit. That fruit will evidence itself in continual repentance, submission to Christ's lordship, and obedience to his commands. The second truth is that God always delivers his peoples from trials and testings. That is not to say that God does not have a purpose in trying and testing us. As Peter revealed in his first epistle, trials and testings purify us and provide a witness to unbelievers. God will allow us to suffer for a time to accomplish his purpose. But during those times, my friend, you and I have a choice. We can be like Noah or we can be like Lot. See, amid the suffering... Noah chose to faithfully proclaim God's message to the pagan world around him. Noah's choice resulted in the saving of his family and material blessing. Lot, however, chose personal comfort amid suffering. And his choice resulted not only in the tormenting of his own soul, but the loss of everything, including his family and material possessions. My friends, you would do well to choose who you're going to emulate, Noah or Lot. Now, it will not change your eternal destiny. Both were righteous and both delivered. But it will, however, determine your blessing and rewards in this life and the next. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we thank you for the certainty of judgment of false teachers. Because with that certainty, Father, comes the certainty that you will deliver, you will rescue your righteous ones. Father, I thank you that you, you will rescue us, you will deliver us from temptation despite our failings. Father, I thank you that you have mercy 
and that your mercy is rich. I pray, Lord, that we could be like Noah, that amidst suffering, amidst trials and temptation, we can be faithful and continue proclaiming the message of repentance. But Father, prevention that we become like Lot, I pray that you might have mercy, that you might rescue us and, and restore us, Father, that you might grab us by the hand, if all possible, and lead us out of that city of Sodom and Gomorrah. That, Father, in rescuing your people, we might see your hand of mercy. We might see your love. We might see your justice. And, Father, we thank you for that. Father, may we also be mindful that but by the grace of God, there go us. It's easy for us to look down our nose at another believer and, oh, look at them, they're acting like Lot. But, Father, perhaps if the shoe were on the other foot, we would do just the same. And so, Father, we pray for mercy, and we thank you for mercy. In this we pray in your Son's name. Amen.